Hello again everyone and welcome back to the Underground. This is the Intel update for Friday the 8th of September and as always it is being recorded on the day prior. Starting off with some of the more broad strategic trends that we're noticing, uh, many of you have uh, been paying attention to the very fiery uh, wildfire season this summer, not just in the United States, but overseas as well. It looks like uh, it has most certainly been a summer of arson with regards to wildfires because many of the fires, uh, not just in the United States, but uh, again overseas and, and in Europe, have been uh, confirmed to be arson. So we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second, but that's kind of going to be the, the theme for today is wildfires being used as a weapon by malign actors. Sort of in the same vein, we've got, we're starting to notice a lot more, more serious events occurring more often. So as we've been following for a very long period of time, we know that infrastructure attacks or, you know, suspicious incidents, right? Really any kind of thing or event that has taken critical infrastructure offline, rail, POL production, transportation capabilities, stuff like that. We're noticing a lot more uh, airlines being offline uh, due to systems glitches. We've got communications problems. Uh, basically, a lot of the stuff that we've been following for a very long period of time seems to be increasing in frequency and also increasing in severity, which again, we'll, we'll touch on here in a little bit when we get to the refinery fires. But generally speaking, it seems like, I hate to be sort of mystical about it, but it seems like there's a kind of a, a very unique atmosphere uh, that's developing amongst uh, the U.S. population, at least. Just as a gut feeling of my own, it seems like a lot of people are just kind of in wait, waiting mode now. Like, we're just waiting for next November, we're waiting to see what happens uh, until then, and we're kind of just hunkering down and uh, making do with the time and resources that we have left before things get kind of crazy again. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of speculation as to what's going to happen uh, over the next, well, year, I guess, and we've got a long way to go, uh, so the, anything can happen, and I think that we're all kind of predicting things to get steadily worse in many regards uh, up until that time. So it's kind of like a very brooding atmosphere. Like you can go out and you know public and just cut the tension with a knife. Sometimes like people seem like like just walking around and looking at a lot of the people that I see in my you know day to day life. They just seem like they're ready to snap any minute. And uh, there's just a lot of tension uh, in a lot of places. Now, of course, I don't walk around every single city in the United States every single day, but it just seems like from my very small portion of the world that uh, there's a lot of frustration out there, and it seems like it's, uh, you know, the kettle's about to start boiling here. I guess we'll have to see how this develops over time. So let's dive a little bit deeper and start talking about specific regions. And first up, we'll talk about the Maui crisis, because so many people have been uh, following this incident since it began. Uh, and I don't really know where to begin. Uh, I would imagine that everyone has heard about what has happened in Maui so far. Uh, but to briefly recap, on the night of August the 8th, uh, multiple fires started on the island of Maui. Uh, though the fires spread rapidly throughout much of the island, island, uh, most of the catastrophic damage occurred in the township of Lahaina. For reasons that we'll get to in a moment, uh, the casualty count is not really known. Uh, however, based on the casualties that have been discovered so far, uh, this is already looking to be one of the most deadly wildfires ever. Uh, officially, the death toll stands at 115, but the final count is expected to rise to well over a thousand. FEMA themselves are estimating a potential of one to two thousand casualties, unfortunately a large number of which are children. Unfortunately, uh, locals have been noting many, many, many discrepancies with the casualty count and are extremely upset regarding the emergency response to this disaster. Now, I've I've really got to choose my words carefully when talking about this event because I want to be as clear as possible. Uh, this is one of the more horrific events that we've seen in a while. Also, despite all of the deaths and the missing persons that are still somehow unaccounted for, me being someone who works mostly in the information space, I, I notice a lot, uh, as do many of you. And I don't want to take away from the seriousness of this incident, but my mind immediately notices the cover-up and the poor emergency response. Uh, this is the first disaster that I've heard of where there is a total media blackout. Literally, blackout fencing has been put up around disaster zones, which locals uh, in Lahaina are calling the Biden Curtain. Now, let me explain for a moment that I understand protecting the victims, okay? Emergency responders have, for the longest time, taken this into account, right? This is just a standard thing that emergency responders deal with on a daily basis, right? Pushy media desperate to sensationalize a crisis 
crisis, this is part of the job. Uh, every ambulance in America has fabric sheets or blankets to hold up to preserve, you know, the dignity of victims, right? This is also why crime scene tape exists, right? So I get it to some extent, but there is absolutely no justification for a full blackout, and it it colors everything that we we talk about because we just don't know. We have to speculate to some degree because we're not getting the information. One of the bigger things that, that actually has happened is satellite imagery has been censored. Uh, now here on your screen you see a screenshot from uh, my attempts to get some of the more commercial satellite imagery and I don't know if this is just on my end. I've tried it on multiple computers and I just I can't get this to work so maybe it's been corrected by now. I don't know but it looks to me me like specific chunks of satellite imagery are literally being cut out of the larger image tile to censor what is going on in some of these areas. That There's no excuse for that, right? Uh, emergency responders need to have access to satellite imagery, and they may, but they need to have it open to the public. There's no way that you can see human remains on a satellite image. You just can't. It's not possible. The resolution's not that good. This, again, is something that makes me go, hmm, uh, there's a lot of problems with this, and it's it seems to me like this is doing a lot more harm than good. The media cover-up is doing a lot more harm than good, and this is a trend that we're noticing with Maui. Uh, it's not so much about the devastation of the fire anymore. It's it's the devastation that is being made worse by the fact that the government is is doing some serious harm here. Another thing that that is just kind of bugging a lot of people uh, is that a lot of the barriers and the blackout fencing that is being put up are is being put up in areas where it's are they've already been searched and there are no casualties in those areas or the casualties have been removed so why do you want to prevent people from taking pictures of the remains of a house right the house burned down there are pictures there are tens of millions of pictures of wildfire damage all over the internet but why this one why do you not want to take photos of this one? So what's become patently obvious to me, my opinion is that the feds want to cover this disaster up and make it look like it never happened, uh, or conceal evidence from the public of something perhaps a bit more nefarious. I, I have more serious thoughts on this incident uh, because I have a history in emergency management uh, you know, as a volunteer for, for several years, and um, I have very, very strong feelings about what I'm seeing uh, being done from an emergency management perspective. And many emergency management uh, personnel around the country have come out and said this is utterly shameful, uh, the response so far. So uh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole now because I don't think it'll do much good. Uh, what I would like to focus on is how this event is a milestone in the community of emergency response and what everyday citizens can do when this type of event happens elsewhere. To me, this event highlights what we already know, that there is no one coming to save you, and you know we've known this for a long time, but this particular event adds an additional part. There's no one coming to save you, and those that do come for you will not be saving you. I hate to start off on like a, a negative note, but look, we've got mainstream media outlets like local affiliate stations in Maui reporting, running stories where they're talking about locals running illegal rescue operations. Let me say that again, illegal rescue operations. And they're dodging law enforcement like pirates, but instead of committing crimes, they're literally delivering diapers and food to those in need because the law will not let them through the barricades to get aid to people. So if this is on mainstream media, you know how bad it is. You know, aid and disaster relief has basically been criminalized in Maui, and I think we all need to be paying attention to that because it changes the dynamic, does it not? Like, holy cow, this is a, a very big deal here. And I, I know that I'm, I'm kind of like harping on this a lot, but uh, I just wanted to kind of get across that the trust that emergency services has had is sadly eroding away. And I don't think anybody in the emergency services in Maui is trustworthy or is trusted by the locals at this point because of how poorly this is. And I know that there are people trying to do the right thing, but good grief, you've got every disaster management person in a position of authority who's either criminally incompetent or 
intentionally negligent. So it's hard to get a citizenry to kind of trust you when you're trying to harm them. Now, as far as the cause of the fire, this is where a lot of speculation has come out because, again, we just there's literally no information. Uh, they tried to blame the uh, power company that uh, the power company did not shut the power off and high winds caused you know sparking and, and arcing and stuff like that and that caused the fires. Well, the power company has come back and said, nope, we we've got receipts. We shut the uh, shut the power off before. Uh, any heavy winds went through the area, so again, it's like the authorities trying to to cover up something. Uh, I think the evidence is stacking up that something is going on here. Uh, mainstream media in the initial days of the incident were claiming arson, so that's kind of what I've tem templated. Now, of course, we we just have nothing. It's it's just pure speculation at this point. Usually, as time goes on, you get more information and you're able to make a more informed decision about something or make a more informed assessment, more educated guess, right? But now, you know, based on the media blackout, we just don't have that information. So at the minimum, I am personally plugging this incident into my risk management matrix as being an intentional action. Uh, the means of this incident are certainly up for debate. And I think there are some pretty interesting theories floating around the Internet as to what actually caught like the the thing that caused these fires. But I'm I really don't have any basis for getting into the details of that. All I can say is that I think the general attitude out there is that this was an intentional attack intended to spur a land grab. Uh, beyond that, the specifics are still up for debate and will be debated due to this, again, the censorship concealing all the details of this incident. I have never seen a supposed natural disaster be locked down like this. Even 9-11 was not censored this much, uh, which gives you kind of an, an idea of what's going on here. The thing is, is the government is not doing itself any favors in convincing people that this wasn't nefarious. In fact, they seem to be smirking the exact opposite. But again, trying to tamp down my own personal anger regarding this incident and trying to you know keep our heads on straight through the information warfare I did want to mention that a good chunk of what people are attributing to essentially terrorism is really just criminal negligence like for instance the roadblocks there's a, a mainstream story that's in the mainstream media now that a lot of locals you know dozens of people are reporting that roadblocks were keeping them in the fire zone and uh, even mainstream media outlets are running like a, a headline that says basically only those who disobeyed the government roadblocks survived now I understand the sentiment but knowing how these operations work I would be willing to bet that somebody was told to put up barriers to keep people from driving into the fire zones, as is pretty standard. But oftentimes there is no way to determine which way the barrier is pointed, if you know what I mean. So a firefighter drags a barricade across the road, like the you know, classic police, police line barrier kind of thing, and the citizens think it's to keep them in rather than people out of the fire zone. That's why I have never seen a roadblock be unattended. There's, there's reasons for this. There's supposed to be at the minimum, like a brush truck or somebody stationed there at the barricade to help people know what to do and to control traffic. You never want to leave a barricade unattended. This is not just for citizens, but this also helps uh, various fire crews who might be you know, doing some interagency stuff, working with different crews who might not be familiar with each other. Uh, it helps all of these people communicate very clearly to one another. The wildland fire community in particular, like these guys have learned this lesson. They've learned the the value of a single dude standing by the road who can say, don't go that way, the fire's shifted, or something like that. So clearly this did not happen all over the island, and there were unattended roadblocks everywhere, especially on the main road out of Lahaina. So how much of this crisis can we attribute to criminal negligence, deliberate terrorism, or just a bunch of people being overwhelmed and not up to the job? I don't know. But I'm planning for incidents like this to continue and for the disaster relief to be deliberately bad or worst case scenario for agencies to start targeting citizen responders. I know people might not like to hear it. They might just think this is just some kind of anti-government rant, right? You know, particularly those working the Maui crisis. But man, ask yourself, why do so many perfectly reasonable citizens seem to think their government is trying to kill them these days? Rightly or wrongly, whether you agree with that or not, why do a lot of people seem to think this, right? Why do a substantial number of people seem to think this? Could it possibly be a trend that they are noticing? 
And if people have blown this out of proportion, if I'm just all wrong, if I'm just, you know, blowing this out of proportion and this is just completely not the way it is and this is just a normal wildfire and there's nothing nefarious whatsoever, why not take the tiniest bit, the tiniest bit of effort to convince me? Like, there's no effort being made to say that this wasn't nefarious. Like, I've got all this evidence. Like, the, the internet at large has got all of this evidence of censorship. You've got the mainstream media talking about the censorship. You've got international agencies talking about what's going on here. Why, why is this such a lockdown situation? And there's, like, and somehow the burden of proof is still on me? Like, what's going on here? You know, it's just gaslighting to the highest degree yet again. Something nefarious happens. They tell you something nefarious is happening, and they try to cover it up in the most literal iron curtain kind of way, and they point the finger at you for being a conspiracy theorist, right? This has been a theme for a long time, right? Gaslighting is just kind of the way the world works now. So I don't want to get bogged down too much into what is obviously an information operation. Like, I'm not putting a whole lot of effort into convincing people. Like, I could put together a three to four hour, you know, briefing on exactly all of the suspicious stuff surrounding this, but it would be worth nothing, right? Because the people who I would be trying to convince that something suspicious is going on, they wouldn't listen even if I had 15 hours of information on it. So we've kind of passed the Rubicon on that kind of stuff. I think this happens with a lot of incidents, not just Maui, but we get to a point to where it's like, okay, there's obviously going something going on here, and it doesn't do me any good to sit here and dwell on it and try to convince people over multiple hours that maybe you should start thinking or at least acting like this, you know, plug this into your risk management matrix as being something more nefarious, right? I'm just wasting my time, and I think a lot of the internet is trying is wasting its time as well. What burns, what really burns me up though, is when someone who would ordinarily be a perfectly reasonable, rational, decently good decision-making person uh, would look at an incident like this and just not see any of this, right? Like, I'm not searching for this. This is on the mainstream media, which means it is an approved narrative that there's something going on here, which that's enough of, that's enough detail right there to tell you what's going on. And then, like, find anybody on social media who's living in Lahaina right now, and you will find some of the most horrific content ever, because no one is saying that the emergency response is appropriate. Like, this is all bad. <laughs> And again, we cross that Rubicon sometimes where an event happens that's so horrifically bad that we want to hope and pray that it's just an act of God, right? We want to hope and pray that this is something that is more natural. You know, I don't want to get too off topic, but a thought did occur to me, so I feel like this is worth sharing, is that I think that... For a large portion of the population, they're just not—they're just not savable from an information warfare perspective. I would say probably a good 80% of all of Americans, at least the world—I don't know—but at least Americans, a good 80% of them will believe basically anything you tell them and can fall for even the most ridiculous of information operations. So just—just just, I'm just discounting 80% of people like right off the bat. But when we talk about that other 20%, the other 20% of people who don't necessarily go down every rabbit hole they come across, but they're they're more critically thinking. They're actually capable of critical thinking, which I think both the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Experiments kind of prove how rare critical thinking actually is amongst the general population. Uh, it actually ends up being about 80-20. Only about 20% of people, uh, according to those experiments at least, it's suggested that only about 20% of people have critical thinking skills, and it's something that you cannot teach, really. So, of that 20% of like the population that might actually be able to have a rational conversation about something and take in information and rationally process that information into a more complex thought using empirical evidence as needed to reach a conclusion, right? Of those people, it seems like a substantial portion fall victim to, I guess, what would be called the bystander effect, right? It's very much like that case, uh, what was the book called? I think the book was called 38 Witnesses, The Murder of Kitty Genovese. Uh, I, there have been several books written on it, but I think the very first one was um, was probably the best one. And this was uh, the horrific murder of a young lady uh, in New York 
back in the 60s, I believe. And the reason that it was, the book was called 38 Witnesses and why this is uh, known as the Genovese Syndrome is because there were 38 first-hand witnesses to her murder. And the kind of general attitude at the time was, wait a minute, there were 38 people who saw or heard her being killed over a very long period of time uh, that, that fateful night, and no one did anything? Well, it's kind of sparked this general theory, which is a subset of the bystander effect called the Genovese Syndrome, in which some people see an event that is so horrifically bad that they, their mind, in order to protect them from psychological trauma, erases something from their immediate vision or from their immediate memory. So this is why sometimes, or at least this theory has been attempted to explain, sometimes why you see a horrifically brutal attack or a murder or something like on a city street and people just walk by it. It's not necessarily sometimes that they're just callous people and they just don't care. It's that their mind sees it, processes it, and before they can even have a conscious thought, their subconscious has literally erased that from their vision. So they literally do not see it. And they were they will but they will recall it hours later. So again I don't want to get too off topic, but I think that with Maui we're seeing this a lot. We're seeing people who are rational people who are perfectly normal. Uh, they've got you know good jobs, good family. They're active in their community, and this incident happens in Maui, and we see the patently obvious signs that something is wrong here. We may not be able to point exactly to what's wrong, but we see that there's something wrong here, and people who are ordinarily rational just ignore it. And I think that that's a good explanation, as good an explanation as I can think of, uh, for why we're starting to see a lot of people who would ordinarily be like-minded people, right? And they ignore things that are not necessarily something that you would think they would ignore, right? Now, again, that's not to say that people don't notice things and people aren't upset and people aren't, like, active and trying to do things and trying to resist and trying to better their world and and um, kind of fight back against the powers that be, so to speak, all over the world. I'm not saying that's not happening. I'm just saying that in my own life and through my own very difficult attempts to kind of grow a community, I see this a lot. So again, this is just a purely random speculatory thought on my part. I just wanted to share it because I think that there's some value to be had there. I think that we're going to start seeing some very, very, very bad things occurring and the world elites or whoever's doing it is going to openly tell you on the front page of the New York Times, we did it. We're the ones who did this. Ha ha, right? And a lot of people are going to be outraged and then do nothing, right? Or they're just not going to react to it at all because they cannot psychologically deal with the fact that someone might be doing something this horrific. I think that a lot of people are thinking these days, and I think that a lot of people are wising up to what's uh, going on and what they may have done to themselves over the past couple of years. And I don't know that... I think that we're seeing a lot of people seeing a lot of the medical research come out. Uh, people who, you know, they fell for the brainwashing, or they voluntarily jumped right in, and they were not exactly a victim so much as a willing participant uh, in their own destruction, basically. And... I think we're seeing these people kind of walk things back, but they can't possibly psychologically deal with what they have done, so they just ignore it or pretend like it doesn't happen or they double down. Uh, and, you know, that's the case for a lot of people out there, but uh, I just, I just, I'm trying myself to kind of rationalize why rational people are not rational these days. You know, why some people just don't necessarily uh, seem to be making the best decisions, even though they seem to be like the kind of person that, that would. But anyway, I think we've strayed far enough from this topic, and I think that's, you know, I, I see an incident that happens, and I see an incident where there are hundreds of casualties, potentially thousands of casualties, and I'm already thinking at the very strategic level of, all right, I'm expecting five of these types of events in, you know, various locations, you know, next week, that kind of thing. I slip into that mode of, 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 of like extreme mass casualty kind of thing. And I try to psychologically like deal with this myself. And it's really hard to, to do this when all of the evidence is stacking up that this was an intentional act. 
it's like, what do you do? You know, I, I touched on this during during the COVID thing. Like, what do you do when you figure out that we're looking at a potential genocide of billions of people? You know, <laughs> you, know you kill you know a few million in, in southern Cambodia and you're a monster. But what happens when you try to eradicate the majority of the human population? Man, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Uh, but I can tell you what a lot of people do is they see that that is such a horrific thing. They just kind of ignore it. So yeah, not exactly a cheery uh, way to start things off here. But uh, let's go ahead and move to the national map here. And this is a screenshot of an ArcGIS or... Uh, I think it's actually on Esri Global. Uh, I'll put the link uh, to where I got this map below, but this is the map of all the current wildfires that are currently burning around the United States. Now, again, this is a big scary map, and you'll see a lot of people, uh, like uh, particularly on Snapchat, saying, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And it is. Uh, because a lot of these are arson. Uh, however, the map looks like this basically every wildfire season. So there are thousands of fires around the United States during wildfire season, and they vary in size, right? Sometimes they're just very small brush fires, and other times they're great big crown fires. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that there were a lot of fires up in the Pacific Northwest uh, that were very substantial, as well as down along the Gulf Coast, which were not exactly, they weren't exactly as, as natural as you might want to believe. So again, just want to kind of remind everyone that wildfires occur this time of year. It's wildfire season, the summertime. Things are hot. It's hot in the summertime. Who knew? And wildfires occur uh, for any number of reasons, either lightning strikes or maintenance issues on power lines or something like that. Legitimate wildfires start accidentally, but also a lot of these are arson, and it's really hard to pick and choose and say this one's arson or this one's not. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the Northeast. Starting off with Massachusetts, uh, around 250 National Guard members have been activated to, uh, it's kind of questionable as what they're doing, we don't really know exactly, but uh, it looks like they have been activated to assist with illegal immigrant transportation. Uh, it looks like a lot of logistics personnel and mostly trucks. So as many of you know, uh, southern states like Texas have been busing illegal immigrants from the border to places like New York City as well as uh, Boston and places around uh, Massachusetts. And, uh, of course, these uh, northeastern states are freaking out because they've gotten a couple thousand immigrants. You know, never mind the crisis that the rest of us have been dealing with. But anyway, these uh, these states have declared emergencies, and now suddenly immigration's a problem. Uh, so they're trying to figure out what to do with these people. So basically, immediately uh, after a lot of buses... Uh, start dropping off illegal immigrants, they either get scooped up by the National Guard and put on uh, military trucks to be transported to homeless shelters throughout the state, or they get put in more, um, more permanent billeting, right? It's really kind of hard to say what Massachusetts is going to be doing. I would expect New York has probably done the same uh, already. If they haven't done so already, they're probably going to, uh, because there's just too many people like you know, basically every luxury hotel in New York City is full of illegal immigrants, and it's causing problems for uh, travelers, uh, you know, the rich elite from other countries or around the United States even, who want to stay in some of these luxury high-rise uh, hotels, and uh, they can't because they're full of illegal immigrants. So uh, it's causing just a lot of problems for the Northeast, and I will admit I'm surprised that this tactic used by uh, places like Texas actually worked. Um, I did not expect it to, to work, but, you know, they put a couple of thousand immigrants on buses and uh, bus them to a, a, an extremely um, liberal area, a liberal city with, you know, it's a, you know, New York City's a mega city, you know, Boston's a pretty big city as well. You know, you put a couple thousand people on buses and apparently that's all it takes to cause mass pandemonium. So, Either way, uh, I would expect this to continue, uh, but I would also keep that caution bulb lit because, again, you know, maybe I'm just all wrong. I don't know. But uh, ever since really around 2020, I don't know what it was, but I get kind of this uneasy feeling every time the National Guard gets activated for something that's not like hurricane response or like flooding response, you know. So, you know, excuse me for thinking that. Uh, I don't know what it is, but... Uh, I just get a little bit nervous these days. Uh, anytime I see the National Guard get activated for something that involves putting people on trucks and moving them to another location. So, anywho, let's move on down to the southeast, in which we have uh, kind of the same story as usual. So, starting off with Florida, we've got just just wanted to kind of remind people around, about the malaria outbreak that's down there. It's not really serious. I think there are only seven cases. So, you know, how many tens of millions of people live in Florida? It's not a whole lot, right? Uh, but I did find something interesting. I've been digging into it a little bit more, and I found a mainstream media article 
or actually, actually several mainstream media articles, which, you know, of course, in the sources for this brief, uh, that reference an interesting thing. And it turns out that the narrative that malaria is normal in Florida is not exactly true. So it turns out that prior to 2003, uh, we had basically malaria being in Florida fairly commonly, not like extremely widespread like, you know, the Amazon or someplace like that, uh, but it was decently common down there. And they had a lot of eradication efforts, they did a lot of campaigns, um, there was a lot of stuff done, and for whatever reason, sci scientists are not really certain, but around 2003, malaria just kind of stopped, it just kind of petered out, you know, these are, this is not particularly uncommon, things like this happen. So, so it is possible, it's very feasible for malaria to basically be eradicated from an area naturally, or uh, through like some limited efforts. So it remained that way uh, for about 20 years. Uh, so from 2003 up until last year, there were virtually zero malaria cases. Most years there were zero confirmed malaria cases. Uh, and the malaria cases that did pop up, it was because somebody traveled to like Africa or someplace where malaria is, you know, kind of endemic. And that all changed last year. Interestingly enough, right around the same time, Florida approved the release of genetically modified mosquitoes to combat malaria. Now, here's the thing. Why would you be airdropping mosquitoes to combat malaria in an area in which malaria has been basically eradicated for 20 years? Oh, and it just so happens that right around that time, malaria comes back. Interesting how that works. So, I, you know, I hate to jump on, like, the conspiracy rabbit hole, uh, even though conspiracy theorists have been right about more things have been wrong. You know, it's just not a good analytical practice to kind of try to make these analytical leaps uh, sometimes. But, man, I feel like this is a pretty strong correlation just for me looking at it casually. Either way, you know, I'm, I'm putting on the head net when I'm going to Florida kind of thing. You know, I'm rolling my sleeves down and making sure that I'm... Uh, taking precautions against this kind of stuff. So I thought, hmm, it's very interesting how that kind of all works out. But yeah, you guys can do the research on your own and, and figure out, figure more about it. You know, I'm sure anybody can find enough research to support their own idea. So I don't want to lean on it too much. And I just wanted to kind of put the, put the thought in everybody's head of, hmm, very interesting. Moving over to Louisiana, we've got mostly fires and explosions. Uh, the largest wildfire in Louisiana's history is uh, still burning. I think this morning they said it was around 50% contained. Uh, it may be more contained by now, uh, but it was the Tiger Island fire uh, right out there on the western side of the state. Uh, so yeah, big wildfire down there. Not particularly. I, I, I have it listed as kind of a more nefarious purpose because we don't know how it started as far as I know. Um, but I guess we'll just kind of have to wait and see. You don't normally tend to see wildfires get that big down there in that area without conditions being exactly right. So I don't know. I, I think, um, we'll just kind of have to leave that one as a more nefarious reason until we can prove otherwise. So we'll, we'll wait for more information on that. Uh, but the other one was an interesting one. The Marathon Refinery in Garyville caught fire again. Uh, I think this is the third time in the past two years that there's been a fire at this facility. We literally just talked about this uh, just a few months ago. So this facility, we've, we've talked about several times before, and it's on fire yet again. It's almost like, uh, particularly the refineries down there in Texas and Louisiana, it's almost like as soon as they get repaired and back to full capacity, they catch fire again. So again, I don't want to be making too many analytical leaps just because it kind of irks me as a bad analytical practice. But man, I tell you, like at some point in time, you just got to look at your gut and say, this is definitely something nefarious. So... Anyway, we're, we're going to have to skip over the Midwest and we'll jump down to the Southwest and, and talk about uh, the border crisis, which is, again, uh, continuing to get worse by the day. As a matter of fact, this video came out the other day, uh, which shows cartels have actually started dismantling the, the border fence themselves uh, and making nice little gates uh, to get their vehicles through. So 
Um, again, I can't verify the veracity of this uh, video, but I thought it was kind of interesting. It started popping up on a lot of the, the channels that track uh, cartel movements, and it's like, yeah, man, it, it is it is a true free-for-all uh, at this point, and it's not getting any better. Uh, the U.S. government has again, uh, reporting by mainstream media, has confirmed that the U.S. government is selling off uh, a lot of uh, border fence pieces for scrap steel, so it's like... Good grief. Uh, yeah, it's it's not good. And um, yeah, it's like I mentioned, uh, I don't remember if it was last time or the time before that. I've mentioned before, like, look, man, <laughs> this immigration thing is not just something that I can explain. Okay, you have to live it. And, you know, like I mentioned, I grew up in the rural south where, uh, you know, illegals, uh, were the primary source of employment for uh, picking tobacco and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it's it, we're finding out exactly what happens. You know, a lot of people who don't know, and I can't exactly come out and say because it just sounds bad, uh, what's going on here. But it's like, look, man, hey, you, you, you get these illegal immigrants, man, and you get uh, you get the culture that comes with it. I think even the Iranians are kind of poking fun at this. The Iranian government uh, a few months ago uh, made a comment basically that, um, like, look, you know, you're taking all of the, re you're calling them refugees, but we call them criminals in our country, and you're taking all of our criminals, all the people that we wanted to prosecute, you're treating like they're the, you know, the tired and huddled masses, and they're awful garbage people that we were trying to expel from our country anyway. And you're taking them like they're just normal people here. And, you know, I don't want to say all illegal immigrants are like that, but it's like, man, look at look at what's happening. You know, there's a reason why the drug, drug trade is at an all-time high right now. And, you know, all of these uh, extremely liberal cities are, are bringing in, or rather, they're being bussed in. You know, people are being bussed into these cities, and look at what's happening. So... You know, hey, I don't want to rant and rave about it too much, but it's like, good grief, man. I think a lot of people are figuring out what a lot of us are. You guys down in Texas have got it, have had it bad for a while. Like, I, you know, grew up in the southeast, and uh, I just had to deal with seasonal migrant uh, workers. But, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of people are finding out exactly what what's going on, and it's not exactly just people coming over the border uh, because they want a you know a better life. It's not like that a lot of times. Uh, a lot of times it's just straight up uh, criminal activity, and uh, they're fleeing their home nations because they were being prosecuted in their home nations for being criminals. I think a lot of places are are finding that out right now, and I guess we'll have to wait and see if anybody actually starts understanding what's going on. Um, because I think a lot of people are too afraid to talk about the the immigration crisis because they don't want to be labeled as being something. Uh, less than desirable, but uh, you know, for those of us who don't really care anymore about labels, yeah, it's it's kind of patently obvious as to what's going on. So let's move on to the Western United States, and really, again, the only thing I wanted to point out is uh, again wildfire up there uh, in Spokane that was kind of a, a big deal for a while. I think it's contained now. Uh, there have been a plethora of wildfires throughout the Pacific Northwest, which is fairly standard again for this time of year. But these these tended to be um, a lot more. I guess the word kinetic would be appropriate. They tended to be a lot more active, I guess, uh, because they were uh, really near decently populated areas. So a lot, of, most wildfires occur in areas which are very far from humanity, which is why you know you 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 get like a ten thousand acre wildfire and nobody really cares because it's in the middle of nowhere. But a lot of these wildfires are starting to occur near places where people go, which should be a decently uh, strong hint as to. Uh, the cause of some of these fires. So, again, most of these fires remain under investigation from a cause perspective, uh, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what the results are, uh, even though I think that we... Uh, it would not be a bad assessment to just go ahead and treat these as if there were arson. Even if they aren't, you know, you're, you're better prepared if you uh, plug that into your risk management process as being some of the, you know, worst-case scenarios. So, before we wrap things up today, I wanted to briefly talk about kind of an interesting thing and kind of a reminder as to why you might want to maintain some level of uh, aircraft tracking capability. Again, I, I know that the SIGINT stuff we do, the kind of nerd radio stuff, uh, resonates with, with some people, but with other people it doesn't tend to resonate. So based on my own analytics, I can tell that people who watch the briefings do not usually watch the educational stuff we do. And the people that watch the educational stuff we do absolutely hate these briefings. 
And that's fine. People can do, you know, whatever they want. Um, but I think that it's probably a good idea to start, you know, getting a little bit more technical knowledge of some of this nerd stuff, even though it's really hard to understand. Uh, and that is evidenced by uh, recently what's been going on in the satellite communications world, which is officially not nefarious at all. But based on my look at it, I think it's decently nefarious. So... For those who have not been tracking space news and satellite, you know, communications news, uh, there have been many uh, satellite outages over the past few months, really the past year or so. And the one that made me kind of like raise my eyebrows was the last one. And this was a SATCOM outage for the Inmarsat 6F2 satellite. This satellite was brought down. Uh, there was a problem with SATCOM for several hours. Uh, it, it appeared to be just kind of a maintenance sort of issue. Uh, satellites for communication don't necessarily have this happen too often. The reason that this one caught my eye is because it comes on the tails right just like six days after Inmarsat I-4F1 went down, which is a satellite that's been in, in orbit for quite a while. Uh, that particular satellite is used for Trans-Pacific Communications. So uh, aircraft reported, uh, you know, they got a NOTAM saying, hey, your SATCOM's going to be down. Again, for people that don't understand, for some of these long-haul flights over very large bodies of water like the Atlantic or the Pacific, mostly the Pacific, aircraft rely on satellite communications for tracking, for, for you know, sending weather reports and text messages back and forth. And you can actually receive uh, and intercept a lot of these uh, communications if you have like an L-band antenna, uh, which I might do a tutorial on in the future. But anyway, these uh, aircraft use this system for transmitting messages uh, you know, around the world. Uh, and it's also a very, very strong safety measure uh, just in case they start having trouble over the, you know, the middle of the Pacific where they're out of range of like most radio uh, communications. So when you've got two satellites uh, having issues from the same company uh, within a few days of each other, that's kind of suspicious. Uh, and this comes on the heels of Viasat 3, which Viasat owns Inmarsat. So this year alone, we have had three, at least by my count, major or decently major uh, satellite issues with Inmarsat, with Viasat. Uh, Viasat 3 is kind of it's been kind of a bigger scandal because Viasat 3 is a much larger satellite and it is for uh, supposedly to provide consumer grade uh, internet access for the Americas, so for North America and South America, uh, and it uh, we're looking at potentially it being a total loss uh, because they're having trouble uh, allegedly having trouble extending their antenna. So they're still trying to salvage that one. And they're still trying to fix it and figure out what's going on and see if maybe they can, they can do something about it. But man, like this, this starts adding up. And the kind of cherry on the top that that makes me interested even more has been the U.S. intelligence community's flights uh, of recon aircraft in the Pacific. So around August August 30th of this year, a lot of weird stuff happened that's not really standard. So we had an awful lot of intelligence collection aircraft flying around the Pacific. We had RC-135 Cobra Ball uh, aircraft up. We had the WC-135 Romeos, the uh, what are they? Uh, the Constant Phoenix, the uh, nuke, the nuke sniffers, the the aircraft that detect nuclear material. We had several E-3 Sentries up and about on all on that same day or within a few days. And a lot of people on I, I guess the internet sphere, like on Twitter and stuff like that, were speculating that maybe this has to do something to do with a Russian missile test, because we were expecting a Russian missile test around. Uh, around August 30th, and we were also expecting a North Korea, another North Korean missile launch uh, around that time as well, because North Korea has been trying to put a military satellite in, into orbit for a while, and um, they just had a holiday, so they launched some ballistic missiles. So it's been kind of, a, kind of an active time period in the Pacific over the past few days. So, of course, due to all of this activity, it's like really difficult to tell what was actually going on. Um, you know, I only wanted to mention... All of this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to not attribute a link simply because all of these events occurred at around the same time. You know, that's kind of poor, that's kind of poor field craft, right? Uh, but I only wanted to mention these space incidents in the context of China because China has expressed great desire to knock out satellites since 
this is one of the ways that China can level the playing field if, if a conflict were to break out uh, with the United States or even like with Japan, you know, regionally or something like that. So what does all of this mean? Does this mean that there is a correlation? I don't think so. I think that link is pretty weak. Uh, I think that all of these aircraft were probably out there looking for something else, something to do with the missile launch. That's the most likely uh, situation, uh, either a, a Russian or a Korean missile test. That makes the most sense uh, because a few of these platforms spent time around the usual splashdown sites, usually the, the usual testing sites. And of course, China has a very large uh, naval exercise that's actually going on, I think it's still going on right now, uh, in the, kind of in the area. So. When you've got multiple things going on, it's hard to attribute like a cause to any one particular thing. But man, the Air Force and the Navy have been burning holes in the sky in the Pacific, uh, out by the Aleutian Islands, out by Kamchatka, out by uh, South China Sea. They've been flying out of Okinawa a lot, uh, flying out of Japan. So, you know, it's it's been kind of busy uh, lately in the Pacific. Um, and I, again, I just, I, I hate to ramble so much today, but I, I'm always thinking that trickery is afoot, right? I, I'm always assuming, uh, that something's going on because it, it kind of is usually when it comes to these strategic assets, you know, they're not flying out there for no reason because, you know, they may think that they're collecting intelligence on, uh, on somebody else, but Hey, look, Russia and China are collecting intelligence on these aircraft too. You know, this combined with the fact that, like, look, man, the, the impacts of that spy balloon, that's never going to be lived down. Uh, so if I was planning a flight and I wanted to fool the American people, if I wanted to fool an analyst like me who's watching ADSB, uh, and I wanted to trick, you know, all the Americans who are trying to monitor all them, you know, the Air Force strategic aircraft, I would camouflage my flight route so it makes it look like I'm spying on like a routine missile test when really there's something going on out there that we don't know about yet. Russia knows what's going on, China knows what's going on, uh, but the American people don't. And the DoD at large is more concerned with hiding their actions from the American population than from, say, the Russian military. It's backwards, it's weird, but hey, the spy balloon kind of proved that. Like, China knew where that spy balloon was at, Russia knew where that spy balloon was at, so why, why conceal it from the American people? Well, I think about that a lot when I think about strategic communications and strategic uh, assets like this flying around. That's the problem with fifth generation warfare, or whatever this is, is that we have to make a lot more analytical leaps than we may like. It's it, it bothers me. I know that it's poor tradecraft. I know that it's poor fieldcraft. I know that it's just not the right way of doing things. And I've got a whole bookshelf of books telling me it's the wrong way to think about something. But dang it, at a certain point, you've just kind of got to go with your gut, even though it's not the best option. You know, you have to work from something, even if it's a bad assessment. And even if you're wrong, I mean, I'm wrong a lot. I'm probably wrong more than I am right. But despite this, you still have to do something, and you still have to kind of consider these things. So so I think that's a good illustration of how I can, or anybody, can draw any link analysis diagram. I can use any bit of doctrine. I can create any matrix, and I can show you uh, any kind of cool graphs and spreadsheets to support my theory, because there is an abundance of information. Uh, so it's really easy to cherry-pick details that makes things seem more serious than they really are. I guess the bottom line is that this, is real, this whole thing is really just a good illustration of why it's important to monitor aircraft, especially strategic assets. Because we don't know what's going on most of the time, and almost all of the time it's going to be speculation, you know. Monitoring the HFGCS, monitoring uh, the, the Russian bear net, we don't know what's going on, but we can speculate to some degree and be decently accurate with our speculations because OSINT communities um, is not not that great because they're, they've gotten a lot of really uh, political these days, but you know the concept of open source intelligence is really is really effective, uh, even though in a fifth generation war it is most certainly uh, a weapon itself. So wrapping things up today, I briefly wanted to kind of talk about some sort of uh, future plans and roadmap kind of things that I'm working on. Uh, really, the priorities I have moving forward are communications and education based. Uh, so on the communications front, I, I think that. For somebody like me, whose main like profession, I guess you could call it that, is in the information space. Exchanging information, working intel stuff, that's, that's an information space job. 
So for me, I'm trying to make um, long-range, beyond-line-of-sight radio communications a, a top priority, especially when it comes to integrating into a more daily daily life situation. I know HF radio is really boring for a lot of people, but there is nothing better, okay? There's nothing better for communicating with, other, with another human over a long range without using any pre-established infrastructure. There's just nothing better um, for, for reasons that irritate me greatly, but uh, it's just the way that it is. For those of you who are more interested in our communications style videos and radio kind of stuff, uh, I'm working on more of that. Uh, you guys know what I'm working on. So some of you out there know the stuff we've been working on uh, kind of behind the scenes. So uh, we'll be making a lot more of that public uh, in just a bit. On the more educational side of the house, uh, I think the, the common like attitude is that we have way too much information to learn and not enough time uh, to learn it before things get crazy again and we have to switch gears to uh, talking about other stuff, right? The time to learn a skill is before you need to learn that skill because by the time you need to learn that skill, it's too late to learn it. Uh, you don't have enough time to practice and actually be as effective as you might want to be. So that's why we've kind of prioritized more educational stuff uh, and uh, kind of breaking down some, some of the more back-to-basic stuff is what I'm trying to do moving forward into the future. Also, I'm trying to improve the redundancy of our little you know S2 ecosystem here. Uh, many of you are aware of us being just on YouTube as a YouTube channel, but I'm trying to increase the uh, resiliency and widespread use of it. So uh, a lot of our uh, episodes can be found as a podcast on most podcasting apps, uh, or you can get it straight from the source. Uh, Buzzsprout is where we have all of our podcasts uh, listed if you like listening to these Intel updates in a more audio-only format. Of course, we've got Odyssey, uh, so if you don't like YouTube, you don't want to watch videos on YouTube, we have our Odyssey page uh, mirrored to our YouTube channel, so as soon as a video goes public on YouTube, it gets sucked into Odyssey. Uh, it may take a little while, uh, especially if there's a larger video, and some of the longer videos, um, I have to transcode manually to a different bitrate and upload them uh, manually like that. So it's a lot more work on my end for some of the larger videos. Uh, so not all of our videos are on Odyssey, I don't think, um, but the process is there. So I'm going to try to do that a lot more often. Same thing with Rumble. A few of you have found our Rumble account. I uh, set up a Rumble account so that we could do the same thing on Rumble. We have mirrored our account to Rumble. So again, as soon as a video goes hot on YouTube, it will go uh, pop up on Rumble as well. Now, it will take a little bit longer on Rumble because they are in the process of uh, pulling in all of our YouTube content to their platform. And I've it's been running for like three months and it's taking a very long time for Rumble to pull in all of our videos. I, I don't know why, but it's just taking a long time because it's a lot of content. But but hopefully moving forward, we'll have decently accessible uh, platforms for our videos, so you'll be able to watch it on whatever platform you so choose. I'm going to also try experimenting a little bit more with Twitter uh, with their sort of long-form video format. I haven't looked into it too much, but I'm going to try because I think maybe an, even an additional platform would be great, I think. Um, and, you know, Twitter's made a lot of changes lately. I don't think for one minute that Twitter is... Uh, a bastion of free speech, uh, oh, quite the contrary. It may look like it, but I, I am not sold on Twitter being a good platform for very much, uh, at least the stuff that we do here. So uh, I will look into it, though, for those of you who like Twitter. Yeah, I, I don't really know how that's going to go, so I mean, I'll try it, whatever. And then finally, I have created a an account on Gab for us. I don't think there's anybody following it right now, but I've been kind of playing around with Gab because they have... Uh, it's kind of a offshoot platform. It's not. I don't know how popular it is, uh, but I finally decided to just kind of bite the bullet and get started over there too. I don't think they have the ability for long video format stuff, but uh, hopefully with some of the more text-based stuff that we do and like updates and wire reports, I'm trying to get as much out there in the ecosystem while still working on the radio stuff so that we have multiple redundancy plans in place. So... Again, lots to come on this. There's None of this is finalized. I'm just kind of working on it and trying and, and testing things out. But we've got to move forward somehow, right? So I'm um, trying to do all of this you know, and improve our workflow, improve the efficiency here so that 
we can offer more uh, services, more information, more educational resources, more stuff for all of you uh, while not uh, working me into an early grave uh, with overwork. So, so that's pretty much all I have for today. Lots of stuff I'm working on, lots of stuff uh, some of the other guys here are, are helping out with, and uh, hopefully we can have a lot more of this stuff kind of solidified and, and, and really uh, be able to be more efficient in helping a lot of you get to where you want to be, right? So thank you, all of you, for your support. We could not do it without you. Uh, thank you again to all of our, our supporters on Patreon and uh, Player or Utreon. Uh, you guys are really the only reason why we're still around. So thank you again for that. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully keep plugging along with some of these goals and uh, trying to just make it another day. So I guess that's all I've got, and uh, we'll see you next time. And as always, fight in the shade.